gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the Stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee Stud. The Tennessee Stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Please welcome the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, and your host, Jeff Maldron. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Ron Fuller's Studcast. I'm Jeff Maldron, and it is a pleasure, as always, to be with you once again as the Tennessee stud takes us down that road of wrestling history. And now, the man of the hour, the Tennessee stud himself, Ron Fuller. Ron, how you doing today, my man? I'm doing good, and uh, before we get any further along, uh, uh, how are you doing, my man? I mean, uh, sure glad to have you back on with us this week, and hopefully you're feeling better. Well, I do apologize to the listeners for the sporadic appearances I've been making. Uh, Unfortunately, I'm getting set to start my second round of uh, chemotherapy, probably somewhere towards the end of this week. So uh, whether or not I will be with you next week or uh, there will be a fill-in, I really don't know. Uh, it's kind of off in the hands of my doctor as the one he wants to put me in. I do appreciate you asking that question, Ron. So, uh, but uh, doing as well as uh, I can hope, I guess. So, where are we going today? Well, we're going to discuss uh, two very unusual matches uh, on April 9th, nineteen seventy-six. That's where we are in the chronological order that we do here on the Studcast, and uh, that's uh, almost exactly to the day, forty-four years from the release of our program, forty-four years earlier. That's pretty amazing. We're just tracking along just about 44 years later on all of these cards that we're talking about uh, in 1976. Uh, We're going to talk about uh, Southeastern success in the other cities besides Knoxville. Uh, And obviously that proved the ratings that we talked about, I think, in the last program and that ratings book that uh, they're absolutely correct about those ratings because our, our matches and our crowds are uh, just right in line with those uh, an increase in the ratings. We're going to talk about the danger of the hills in that part of the country, in that Knoxville area, especially up there in southeastern Kentucky, where those fans had not seen any wrestling, uh, some of them ever. We'll get into a little bit of that. We'll cover the results, obviously, of the of the card of April 9th. Uh, we'll talk about what the matches were. We'll talk about the TV which was an excellent one. And we'll also talk about, obviously, the crowd and the crowds for that week and the payoffs and the, what we usually talk about. And, uh, you know, we're, then we're going to have a, a fantastic little learning tree today. Uh, and it's going to take us back into the, we're going to be riding back into the early 1900s on this one. I'm going to start back explaining basically where wrestlers came from and how the sport grew to be able to answer this gentleman's question. And the question was, where do bookers get their inspiration for storylines and how far out do they plan their angles? Uh, Very good question. Looking forward to answering that one. So I'm just going to jump right in, Jeff. Let's begin today by uh, talking about uh, last week's. Let's try back to last week's April 2nd, 1976 card. I did not get to do the results of that card because we really had a full episode last week. So uh, I'd like to go back now and uh, just remind people of what that card was on April 2nd, because it will have an effect on this April 9th card that I'm about to announce. So on April 2nd, Mike Stallings, who had been out injured for three months uh, from a match with one of the superstars, comes back into action, and uh, he's wrestling Mitsu Arakawa, and he beat Arakawa. Professor Tor Tanaka beat Ron Wright. Butch Malone beat Norvell Austin in one of those matches in which if he beat him in 15 minutes, he couldn't do it. This was a 20-minute. He gets five minutes with Homer. He was able to beat him, and he got that match with Homer. But Norvell's pretty smart. He stayed at ringside, and uh, he interfered in the match before it was all over. And uh, 
it didn't do him any good that Malone actually lost the match to Homer because Norvell caused him to lose it. Robert Fuller and Jimmy Golden are on that card, uh, and they lost a pretty controversial Texas Tornado match with the superstars. And I, on that card last week, won my first Southeastern Championship against Don Carson. And uh, Dick Steinborn was a special referee for that card, that match. And uh, then let's talk about this uh, card on April 9th, 1976. That's the one that this episode is about. It's uh, in Chihuahua Park, and there's always there. You've got an outside amphitheater. If the weather's nice, we're going to be in the amphitheater. If it rains, we're going to be an inside building. We're going to be in the inside building this time, too. Mike Stallings, he takes on uh, Don Lambert in the first match. Professor Tanaka, uh, managed by Homer, obviously, is going to wrestle again, not Ron, but his brother Don Wright. Uh, Butch Malone and Ron Wright wrestling in a tag match for the first time ever against Austin and Homer Odell. Don Carson is going to face off against Dick Steinborn in a most unusual match that I came up with. I called it the perfect match. It's a two out of three fall match. First fall has amateur rules. The second fall is a no DQ rule. And the, whoever wins the fastest fall gets to pick this type of match he wants in the third fall. So that's an unusual. We'll talk about the end of that one later in the program. The main event is the Southeastern Tag Championship match. It's Robert and Jimmy. They have been wrestling now for about four weeks, trying to win their titles back. And this time, they've decided to put their hair on the line, both of them, against the belts of the superstars. So obviously, if Robert and Jimmy win, they're going to be champions. And if they lose, they're going to have shaved heads. So uh, two very unusual matches in the main events for this April 9th card. Talk about the TV show for a second, which is on April 3rd. It's actually the day after we talked about that April 2nd card. It's the next morning we're doing television. The TV show is the last good cast uh, we had. And if your fans will remember, Don Carson and the superstars were not on it live at all. They had to do a pre-recorded personality profile. They were determined at the end of that profile that they were going to cause a problem on television from that point on. And we'll get into that as we talk about the TV show in this one. The Mid-American Champion, Dick Steinborn's in the first match on April 3rd. This is the Saturday before this April 9th card. And uh, it's a great way to open the show because Dundee's wrestling Dundee, Bill Dundee, who's a tremendous little wrestler. And they have about a 10-minute match that is just fantastic for TV. Dundee does a little wrestling. Steinborn does a lot of wrestling. And then Dundee finally takes over, and uh, Steinborn makes his comeback, and he takes the match with a sleeper hole. And he goes to the set with Les, and he's going to watch the Southeastern Championship match from the night before. And it's me against Carson, and he is the special referee. And obviously, as this video goes on, I was in pretty much control of most of that match. And Dick Steinborn kept drawing the attention to the fact that uh, Carson was doing everything possible that he could to get disqualified to keep his belt. Uh, this is the championship match. If he gets disqualified, I can't win the title. Steinborn's the referee, so he's allowing Carson to get away with a lot of things because he doesn't want to see Carson be able to keep his belt if he's just doing the, the being disqualified for that purpose. On the end of the match, I get the fuller leg lock on Carson, and Steinborn uh, asking him if he gives up. Carson reaches up and just nails him with a punch from the mat, and Steinborn goes down. Steinborn gets up. He doesn't ring the bell. Carson now, he's been in the leg hock for a while, and uh, that's a very painful hole. So he gives up. He can't take it anymore. And uh, then Steinborn presents me with the belt in the ring. It's shown on this video. And the fans in the studio obviously love that part of it. Uh, Steinborn stayed on the set for the first interview. And he's joined by Ron Wright and Butch Malone. Steinborn began with talking about this uh, unusual, perfect match, yeah, I called it, uh, between himself and Don Carson for the following Friday night. Uh, and uh, kind of explained how it went. One fall amateur rules, one fall no DQ. And the last fall has to be picked by the winner of the fastest of the two falls. Uh, he loved the concept. Uh, he was really intrigued by it. I talked to him some about the match. He said, Don, there's so many things that can happen in a match like that. So he was really looking forward to it. 
Butch Malone and Ron Wright, when they had their opportunity to talk, they were both looking obviously forward to their tag match because they had not had a tag match with Norvell and Homer Odell, obviously. And there was no manager on the floor for this, which was great for them because, you know, they always had to be concerned about what Homer's going to do outside. Now they got him inside the ring. So this is going to be a good event for the following Friday night. Second match of the TV program got the fans' attention with the Oriental monster, Professor Tor Tanaka. And he's wrestling against Rocky Smith, who was the former Inferno years earlier. Rocky's a great little wrestler, and he really goes in there, tries to make some real good wrestling moves on Tanaka. And Tanaka, you know, he's, he's not taking any part of that. He doesn't want to get on the mat. He doesn't want to wrestle. He just wants to throw some chops and uh, end this thing. So, and that's pretty much what he does. He ends up chopping my man, uh, Rocky Smith, great friend of mine, uh, with a with a karate chop in the forehead. And pretty quickly, that match was over. And uh, then he goes to the set with Homer. And Austin joins him. And they watch the video of Homer winning his uh, five-minute match with Butch Malone. And uh, Malone had uh, actually beaten Austin. And then uh, he got the five minutes with Homer. And Homer starts out by bragging basically about, you know, what he said last week on TV, how he told everybody that he didn't need any help. He was capable of taking care of his own matches. And then the video starts. Homer's doing just that. He's got Malone down, and he he looks like Malone's about to get beat. And uh, Les had him stop the video, and he had him back it up. Homer did it like that. And uh, Homer started, once the video started again, they started at the point where it showed what happened to Malone. Malone was taking care of, obviously, Homer, which uh, he'd had no problem doing. And Norvell ended up getting involved, jumped off the top rope on Malone while the referee's down. And then uh, Homer, that's where the Homer started the video the first time, where he's already taken over. This, he didn't like. He started screaming the tape had been doctored. You know, hey, you know, somebody added that. Uh, Norvell never jumped off the top rope on him. All these excuses. Malone was uh, beaten basically by the fact that Austin got involved. And the studio crowd, you know, they never agreed with the fact that Homer had, had uh, somebody had doctored the tape. Uh, that was just a ridiculous thing to say. Three of them stayed there and they talked about the Friday night match, the next Friday night. And uh, Homer said Tanaka and him were both disappointed in the opponents Tanaka had been getting. The, you know, he'd beaten Ron Wright two weeks in a row. And this next Friday night, he's going to wrestle his baby brother, Don Wright. You know, and Tanaka's shaking his head like, you know, this, I, I, this is ridiculous. And Homer, you know, he's really complaining about the fact that my man, my big Oriental, just not getting the competition he needs. Then they start right talking about the match, the upcoming with the Malone and Ron Wright as partners. Uh, Homer's just really bragging about everything there, how tough he still is, how uh, his Oriental's not getting the proper competition, and the fact that uh, Ron Wright and Butch Malone have no business being in the wrestling ring with him and Norvell Austin. They're going to handle them the next Friday night. I'm on the personality profile in this particular show. And, uh, I had came out with my belt. I had just won the night before. And Les and I talked about a whole lot of things in this profile, which is a little different than than what had been happening lately with all the controversy with Carson and the superstars. Uh, we talked about the things that had happened to me in my quest to win the Southeastern Championship. And we went back and talked about that horrible collarbone injury from the assassin and rock hunter, sent me to the hospital and sidelined me for almost three months. We talked about our days together in Florida as friends when I, he, I first met him, and it was my first year in the ring, about how I'd won the Southern Heavyweight Championship, not just the version in Florida, but I'd won the Southern Heavyweight Championship version that was out of Memphis. So I had won two Southern Heavyweight titles in two different parts of the country. And, and uh, you know, uh, Les was kind enough to point out I'd been Florida champion uh, I'd been Georgia champion. Uh, me and my brother had been both Florida and Georgia tag team champions. And, and then he brought up 1973 and 74 in St. Louis, where uh, I had beaten the now the, who was the president, the NWA champion, Terry Funk. I beat him in 73 and 74 in St. Louis. And uh, then he made 
what was a special announcement that there was going to be a world championship match with Terry Funk in October in Knoxville. Now, this is early, obviously. We're in April, and uh, this match was set up in basically February. So it's a long time before that championship comes. But, you know, he pointed out all these titles I'd held and that I had a couple of wins over Terry Funk, and, and you know, maybe I was going to get to be the guy to get the shot. It was a good profile. And the studio crowd loved it because we did it live. We did it right there where they could see us. And that toward the end of it, though, Carson and the Superstars, they come from the back of Studio B. We're in Studio B. We're facing Studio A, which is the studio in which the actual matches are taking place. And they kind of sneak up behind me and Les. But the studio audience can see them. They see them coming, and they let us know. They started screaming right away as soon as those three guys showed up. And uh, Les, I got up, turned to face them, and Les did too. And Les screamed for them to stop right there. They'd had the big problem the week before. And the cameras in the main studio, because they were shooting from behind us, they got a great shot of the three of them facing us. And then the less call for the director to go to black, because, you know, we, it appeared that, they, you know, there may be going to be a problem. Les didn't want to have that problem in his personality profile. It had happened to him before. About that same time, third match in the show is about to start, and Robert and Jimmy enter the studio to go into the ring for the third match. Studio crowd really pops. They love them. Then the uh, superstars and Carson, they backed away, disappeared back out of the studio. So Rob and Jimmy, they make quick work out of two big guys, both of them 300-pounders, Tony Peters and Don Lambert. Uh, Rob ends up winning with a toehold, and Jimmy drop kicks Lambert off the top rope and sends him right through the ropes. And the fans really were into this match. They really loved Rob and Jimmy as a team. And that's not just in Southeastern and Knoxville. Rob and Jimmy are going to be an extremely popular team in Southeastern and Pensacola at Continental. And they're also going to be tremendous heels as a team. Uh, they ain't no telling how many matches my brother and, and my cousin Jimmy had together, but they are a phenomenal team. So fans are really into it. They really like them. And then they go to the set for the interview after the commercial break. Les is concerned when they come back out of the break, which he was, you know, they had put their hair up. And they, you know, if they lost, they, yeah, I, you know, I was ripping them myself. The guys, you know, you're going to look funny if this, uh, if this don't go like you think. So, uh, you know, they make a great interview about what it meant to have fans like, like the ones in Southeastern and uh, how people everywhere beginning to recognize not just them but all the wrestlers now because the program has gotten to be so hot in uh in knoxville and that surrounding area they said they were being treated like stars everywhere they went and they were kind of stars everywhere we went they talked about how important it was for them to get their belts back to win those belts that they had won in the tournament to be the first ever champions and that the guys that had them on now were nothing more than a couple of hoodlums, and the belts needed to change hands. The two of them, the crowd really liked their comments, and every time they would say something, the crowd would get more excited about it, more vocal. And by the time they got to the interview, the end of it, they stood up, and uh, they actually pointed at the crowd and said, uh, with fans like these, how is it we're not going to become champions? after next Friday. So it was a great interview. Ron, can I ask you a quick question? Uh, involving uh, hair matches. First of all, was that a gimmick match that as a booker or promoter you liked using? And when it comes time for the hair match and say the loser has to lose their hair, what sort of uh, extra uh, amount could they expect in their check? Well, it's really funny. Uh, I never paid for guys to cut their hair. Some territories did. I mean, obviously, uh, some guys didn't want to do it. There wasn't a lot of guys that got their hair cut in, in my territory. Uh, one that I can remember where is in this show and was a big star, and one of the reasons we're doing so well in 76 was Don Carson. And Don Carson cut his hair for me, and he had that blonde hair. It was it was a big deal for him, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and he wanted money, but, uh, you know, he had made a lot of money with me, and and then we were going to go into Southeastern down in Pensacola, and I was taking him down there. It's 
kind of like going home for him in a way. And he, he backed off of uh, having to have the money to do it, and he went ahead and did it. Most guys did want to get paid, and some guys, I assume, made a lot of money. I never cut my hair in the match, uh, so I don't know. But my brother did. He, he cut his hair in one of the matches that we had for Southeastern. And, uh, you know, uh, Rob had nice-looking hair and was a good-looking guy. And it's pretty hard to have somebody do it. But he was committed because he wasn't highly involved in the territory. And we were doing good. It made sense. Okay, uh, so what was the last match? So the last one on the show is going to be Tommy Rich against Don Carson. Tommy Rich is a young star. He's been on a lot of televisions. He's not been on many cards itself. I don't think he's won a match, to be honest with you. But he's already Tommy Rich. He's got that fire. He's got that get up and go in, inside him that it's going to make him a big star. And uh, here he is against Don Carson. And uh, Tommy gets introduced. And then when Carson comes in the studio, obviously the fans go nuts. I mean, they've got tremendous heat, Carson and the superstars at this point. And uh, Carson doesn't go straight to the ring. He kind of passes by the front of the desk with Les. And he makes some remarks about it, it's their show now. You know, I mean, you can get up, Thatcher, and get out of here because it's, it's my show and my superstars now. So there's a little thing going on between uh, Les and the superstars and Carson that's going to last for months and months. So Les doesn't like the remarks, and he kind of yells back at him. And then Carson goes onto the ring, and he gets in there with that, like I said, a, a fiery little Tommy Rich. Tommy Rich uh, gets a comeback going. Carson gets him down, gets a comeback going, and the crowd really got into it. Uh, superstars, they came from the back, and they just stood by the side of the ring. They did not make any move to get into the ring, but it was enough for the referee to shift his attention. He goes over to warn him that you better not interfere in this match. Enough time for Carson to load his glove. And when the referee turned back around, he is already loaded. He nailed Tommy. Tommy went down, and obviously Tommy Rich probably bled better than any wrestler I ever saw. It wasn't long before Tommy's blonde hair was totally red. And Tommy kept, kept fighting back, which was really good. It just made it better. And the studio was electric, you know, until Carson finally put him down. Then the superstars joined they came to the ring. They got in the ring, made a big deal. They raised each one, raised Carson's hands, and the three of them stood there with their hands in the air. And uh, they left the ring, and they started toward the set to do their interview. And like Les had promised on the last show, when he had the problem with him, he got up and left the set. So when they got there, there was no one at the set. Then the announcer, Phil Rainey, slid in there. He was, you know, he recognized that, hey, there, somebody needs to do some talking here and get this started. And he went in and took Les's place. He didn't need to, though, because Carson never let him say a word. He got to sit down and Carson took over. And he started off with a real stern tone, you know, asking about what part Les Thatcher had played in Southeastern's stealing of my belt the night before. He called it my belt, I believe. And, uh, you know, whose idea was this perfect match, this so-called perfect match, and it really didn't matter to him because he was going to hurt Steinborn anyway. So it didn't make any difference what kind of match it was. And he just, he, you know, he was going to hurt everybody that got in the ring with him until he got his belt back. He's really just harping on his belt and how Southeastern has turned into a, an entity that's just got him and his superstars in their sights. And he asked him, you know, uh, why is it that uh, Ron Fuller, the new champion, isn't even on the card next Friday night? And then he said something about, you know, hey, I think he's scared. He's scared to come. And then he screamed at Thatcher. He said, where's Les Thatcher? Where is Thatcher? Why don't you come out here, Thatcher? You ain't got any guts, you know, and uh, obviously he didn't come. Then he says to Phil Rainey, who showed up there, he says, get off my set. Get off here. Get out of here. So Phil got up and he left the set. And uh, then the Carson turned the interview over. He became Les Thatcher, the commentator. And he says, I, I know you guys got something to say about your match. And so they, they jumped right on Rob and Jimmy, obviously. You know, and they laughed about how crazy those two pretty boys are going to look with their heads shaved. 
And uh, so, you know, uh, the fans didn't like that, obviously. And uh, and when they got their heads shaved, then they're going to put some stitches in their heads. And then they're going to be really ugly because everybody be able to see those stitches. So they had their interview pretty well set up. They knew about what they wanted to do. And when the time ran out, the two minutes ran out for the interview, the cameras went black and the light went off. Basically, you're not on the air anymore. Well, they didn't stop. They didn't care. They just kept going. They they went on talking about Rob and Carson went on talking about me. Then they got on the crowd in the studio. This is not being recorded. The director upstairs, when the time runs out on the interview, rather than continue to roll the tape, he cut the tape. So this is not being seen except by those in the studio. So, you know, it's Carson and them kind of having a field day and, and enjoying themselves as much as they can. So Les comes back after the interview. It's the end of the program. He apologizes for what happened at the end of the show with those guys. And uh, basically the war between Thatcher, Carson, and the superstars on television is just getting going. So great show, though. Okay, so Ron, what's uh, what are the results of the card on April 9th, nineteen seventy six? Well, let's see. Mike Stallings beat Don Lambert. Tanaka, who was managed by Homer, uh, he really went a little overboard in his match. <laughs> he beat the crap out of Don Wright to the point that it didn't look like Don Wright had any chance. And then out of nowhere, Don Wright hooked him in a small package and almost beat him. He got a two and a half count. And it was probably the closest that anybody had come to beating Tanaka and, and since he'd gotten to Southeastern. And Homer called him out of the ring. And, boy, reprimanded him and pantomimed to him what he wanted him to do. I want you to go in there and chop him in the forehead as many times as you can. And so Tanaka, he, he went back in and did exactly what he had been ordered to do by Homer. And uh, well, it got done right bleeding, obviously. He was uh, hurting him pretty bad. He was bleeding pretty bad. So Ron Wright comes down because, you know, uh, Tanaka's already pinned him, and there's no reason for him to continue with it, but uh, Homer wants him to, so he just keeps chopping him. So Ron Wright comes down, and he slides in the ring after Tanaka, and, boy, that ignited the crowd. And Then uh, Homer jumped Ron from behind, and now him and Tanaka started on Ron. Malone, who's uh, in the tag match, he came down. And uh, turned the tide. And uh, then Norvell gets down to the ring. And uh, all of a sudden, there's pandemonium in the ring. And everybody in the building is standing up. Everybody's really into it. Uh, The ref managed finally to get uh, Don Wright out on the floor. He managed somehow to get Tanaka out of the ring. And uh, since all hell had broken loose in the match, basically, all four contestants are already in the ring. He just had them ring the bell. Let's just start the match. So uh, the second match kind of flowed right into the third match, and the fans certainly didn't mind it. I can tell you that. They were into it. Uh, the scheduled tag match between Butch and, and Ron Wright against Austin and Homer, it was wild. It was, it was just a crazy match. It really never turned into a normal tag. And end up with Ron Wright chasing Norvell back to the dressing room, and that left Homer in the ring alone with Malone. And uh, that's what the fans had been waiting for for three weeks to see. And Homer tried to run, obviously. Malone cut him off. And uh, then he started in on Homer. And about that time, Tanaka made his way back to the ring to save Homer, which he needed to do, or Homer was in real trouble. And everyone standing out there when Ron Wright arrived back to the ring to help Malone, he came back. So uh, I decided to make the next week card for this group of guys, from what had happened in those two matches there. And the following Friday night, Ron Wright, I'm going to put him back in the ring with Tanaka because of what Tanaka did to his brother. And I'm going to put Butch Malone for the first time alone in the ring with Homer Odell. Ron, it looks like you as the booker are beginning to make main event matches from the bottom of the car to the top. Well, (laughs) <laughs> that's pretty observant of you, Jeff. I try. Every once in a while, I get one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I guess, you know, I got good talent here. It's about this time in 1976 uh, when I got great talent from, from the top of the card to the bottom of the card. And and I start figuring angles for more than just the main event matches. Uh, and as time goes by, 
and when I get even more experience and when I'm going to have even better talent, and that's going to happen in the years ahead, uh, I'm going to have angles on every card for just about the early match all the way to the last match of the night. I'm I'm starting to develop a booking style that's kind of different from most bookers around the world. Uh, I'm going to start making every match mean something and every wrestler mean something from the first match to the last match. Uh, I'm going to angle everybody. I'm going to have people say, it. I, I can't miss the first match because, geez, I want to see what's going to happen between these two. So when that happens, the crews around the people and wrestlers that are getting involved realize that it doesn't make any difference where they are on the card. That makes a huge difference to guys. You know, great talent don't want to be in the first match because they're not going to make the money that the other people do. And they're not going to be involved in angles. And uh, I kind of figured out that if I can angle everybody in some way or, or the other and then pay them all good. And, and and I get to the point in southeastern Pensacola and into Continental where guys will be well, first match one week and the main event the next week. And what I start doing is paying guys basically the same, no matter where you are on the card. and. Uh, that, uh, you know, that keeps guys involved. And when their payoffs are, they, the guys talk to each other, you know, and when their payoffs are all starting to get in the same range and they're all being used and they're all involved, gosh, you got a real happy territory when that happens. Now, that payoff scenario uh, eventually is going to lead to great wrestlers from the bottom, from the first match, all the way to the top and the main events. And uh, it's going to, Kind of make my territories unique. All right. What about the last two matches on the card? Well, that perfect match. <laughs> the idea that I had for this match, uh, this match is fantastic. When I watch it, I, I don't know what's going to happen. Neither does Steinborn and neither does Carson. I mean, uh, I don't know that there's ever been this type of match before. I'd never heard of it. So Carson obviously is the wrestler. And the first fall is a amateur rules match. Well, you know, he's going to win that match and pretty much, you know, undoubtedly. And he ends up pinning Carson in a amateur <laughs> and amateur style. And the match, the first fall of the match lasts only five minutes. So when the bell rings for the second fall, now the second fall is an ODQ fall. So Carson don't have to hide to load his glove and he and he makes no bones about it. You know, they, I've watched the match, and when the bell rings, he just right in front of the referee, right in front of Steinborn, he just loads his glove. And the referee can't even complain about it because it's an ODQ. He can do anything he wants. So Steinborn, obviously, he's trying to stay away from getting nailed by Carson's loaded glove, and he does so for about two minutes. But then uh, finally Carson hits him with a shot and gets him gets him. Uh, down a little bit, and then he gets his shot with the with the glove, and he wins that second fall in four minutes. Now he's won his fall a quick one minute quicker than Steinborn did the first fall, so he gets to pick the style of match he wants in the third fall. And obviously, he wants the no DQ again. He says, "I want that no DQ." Well, why would he not? You know. Uh, so when the bell rings for the last fall, he went to load the glove again. But this time, Steinborn's not stupid. He, he stops him. He catches him before he can load it. And Steinborn uses these wrestling moves in this third fall that were just fantastic. He, he used everything from an overhand wrist lock and a hammer lock to a short arm scissor. He did things that fans didn't see. And he did them all on his right arm where his glove was, which kept Carson from being able to load his glove because Steinborn had control of that arm. It was pretty darn fantastic the way this match turned out. And, uh, you know, Carson got more and more frustrated because obviously he's wearing his arm out for one thing. He can't load his glove. And the fans figuring it out, they go, wow, this is a heck of an idea. He's not going to let him load the glove. So the crowd really got into it. Suddenly the match turned about to be all about wrestling. It was the wrestling moves that were making them so crazy because they knew that he was keeping Carson from loading the glove. But finally, Carson got him a shot. He got his glove loaded, and at about the 10-minute mark, 
he was able to hit him, and he couldn't be disqualified. So, hey, this time one got counted out, and Carson won the perfect match. I watched it, and and when I did, I thought the way it happened, the way it worked out, especially with Steinborn doing all that wrestling, it was really good, and it really the fans really got into it before it was over. I don't know. Uh, I don't ever remember having it, but one more time, one in Southeastern uh, in Pensacola. It's not a match that I booked many times, but I thought it had some uh, real good qualities about it. Last match of the night, that's obviously Rob and Jimmy against the superstars for the title. Uh, obviously, the hair, uh, hair against the belts. And before I start to describe this one, I'd like to talk to fans a little bit about there's a rare photo. Every one of these programs, uh, these stud casts, uh, if you get your, your stud cast through iTunes or some other places, I'm not sure exactly if they come with a photo that has to do with each one of the episodes. Uh, this particular episode, number 142, has a photo, a very rare action photo that uh, I was able to pull from somewhere I saw it on social media with uh, Jimmy Golden and the superstars from this very match in 1976, a live shot. It's on my website, which is tnstud.com. And uh, if you go there, you can either look under the gallery or under the Studcast page and look for number 142. And uh, you'll see this picture of Jimmy Golden as a young guy. And uh, you'll see both the superstars in this shot. It's really, I think, something that fans will, will enjoy. It gives them opportunity to see, get something visual about what I talk about in these programs. You know, the fans, uh, they're not so into it, uh, you know, because they're scared that Rob and Jimmy are going to lose and they're going to lose their hair. And uh, that fact makes them really get into the match uh, because they're concerned about it. Toward the end of this match, uh, the superstars start to really dominate. Uh, Rob's got a hurt back. Uh, They have put the uh, Boston Crab on him. He was able to get out, make the tag to Jimmy. Now they've got the Boston Crab on Jimmy. Probably in the last five minutes of this match, there may be as many as 15 false finishes in which those guys keep working on Jimmy's back. He can't get to Rob to make the tag. They put the Boston Crab on him. A couple of times he fights his way to the ropes. Referee makes him break. Then they start slamming him. One guy come in, body slam him and cover him. One, two, referee about to count him out. Jimmy kicks out. The tags out. The other guy comes in and body slams him. They'd probably body slam him 10 times. And he's already got a back that's really killing him. And the the crowd is just like, they're almost sitting down. They're they're almost giving up. And all of a sudden, uh, about the 10th time they try to slam him, Jimmy slides in there and hooks that small package. And bang, that was the end of one, two, three. That crowd popped and uh, got new champions, new Southeastern champions. It was a really great event throughout the entire night. Okay, Ron, it'd be a good time now to go to David Summers as he talks to us about Super Studcast number 27 as Ron discusses with Jerry Briscoe the career of the Briscoe brothers, Jack and Jerry. During these trying times, if you're a wrestling fan looking for entertainment and a comforting three-hour release, we have 27 tremendous Super Studcasts from which to choose. Super Studcasts are fascinating looks into wrestling's past. Jerry Briscoe spends a captivating three hours plus taking us into that past. From his legendary former NWA world champion brother Jack Briscoe to scouting great amateur collegiates for WWE, this ride is golden. At TNStud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Few have the knowledge and even fewer the ability to tell the stories of professional wrestling. His exchange with Ron is as fascinating as the history it reveals. An old school fan's dream at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Only $2.99. It's more than just a podcast. It's an experience. Okay, Ron, where are we going now? Well, let's finish the week of April 9th since we're in that, uh, you know, Knoxville crowd. It turns out to be about 4,000. Uh, we go inside because it rains that night. That's all the building will hold. Actually, 
Fire Marshal cut us off from ticket sales, but we were somewhere in that 4,000 range. Johnson City, which ran on Tuesday, had about 2,700 people, 200 more than the capacity of that building. Oneida, Tennessee on a Monday and Morristown on a Saturday, two Tennessee towns, uh, had about 2,000 each night, each one of them. We ran two cities in southeastern Kentucky, Middlesboro and Barberville. And those two combined for about another 4,000. So we did about 15,000 fans for the week, which was another record. We could have done even more if it hadn't rained in Knoxville and we would have been able to run in the amphitheater. We'd have been able to hold a lot more people had he done that. But uh, rain kind of kept us from getting over that 15,000 for the week. Gross for the week was somewhere around 40,000. Average payoff for the 15 guys, including the referee that was on those cards, was about 750 each. And that was, if you uh, put that in today's money, that's about $3,400 each man for the week. So not a, not a bad week. Absolutely. Ron, we have a few minutes left before we get to the learning tree. What do you have left for us? Well, I'd like to discuss something that was happening in Southeastern that, that really concerned me. Um, because our television signal was so strong, we, we were reaching cities Traditionally, Knoxville had been on this television station and only went out about 40 miles. So we had started reaching now cities that were 125 miles from outside of Knoxville. So we had become, for some of these people, had never seen any wrestling and certainly never seen bona fide big time wrestling of any kind uh, and much less have them come live to their cities. So Fans were so into it, man. They they just were willing to fight for you. You know, when the heels got you down in some of these towns, heels had to be very concerned about who's coming because uh, the fans in the crowd wanted to get in the ring sometimes. So, uh, and all the wrestlers and the TVs, obviously, were getting so recognizable throughout the area, uh, not just in Knoxville, but wherever the TV show was seen. And especially in that southeastern part of Kentucky where they had the mountains, there were hardly any TV stations in that part of country. And um, not many of them were strong enough. None practically had strong enough signals to reach the people in those mountains areas of southeastern Kentucky. So many of these fans lived in coal mining towns, to be quite honest with you. They were hardworking people, man, living a very tough life. And uh, this station that we were on, it was making stars out of us there. So uh, baby faces were very welcome when they drove into these cities to wrestle. They create huge cowards just getting out of your car to put gas in it. You, you would have 15, 20 people there before you finished pumping your gas. If you went into a restaurant or something like that, they were lined up outside. Everybody wanted autographs. Everybody knew who you were. Well, the same thing was the, in the case of Heels, except they weren't looking for autographs from those boys. They would try not to even come to the towns until it was dark. And then they would hide their faces, put the mask on, and hide their cars when they parked at the buildings. Because if the fans saw them come in, they would tear their cars up uh, during the matches. They'd go out there and cut their tires and, and uh, you know, bust their windows. It was pretty amazing what was going on. Uh, you know, the fans just truly hated them because of this TV show. Uh, so it was dangerous for them to be seen. And it was dangerous as hell to wrestle in the buildings, to be quite honest with you. Uh, and I couldn't go and talk to the police without people knowing that I was involved. So I would have Mac try to get the police involved. But you had some places, you had police, some places you had sheriff deputies, some places you even had state troopers that, that were responsible for trying to get guys back and forth to the ring. And uh, these people really believed what they were seeing. And they were so into their wrestling that all these cities were dangerous, just downright dangerous. So, uh, so we're going to talk about that subject much more in the coming weeks. In fact, I want to tell a story next week about this subject in particular, an incident that happened in one of these towns in southeastern Kentucky that kind of describes the, the potential danger that every hill was wrestling in in that part of the country. Every night they came. So uh, th that we'll talk a little bit about next week for sure. Okay, Ron, I think it's time to get that cold beverage in your hand and sit down under the old learning tree. What's the subject for the uh, audience today? Today's learning tree question comes from a gentleman named William Plummer. 
And uh, his question is, uh, where do bookers get their inspiration for storylines and how far out do they plan their angles? That's another great question. I kind of got to back up and and kind of start from the beginning, uh, not just with bookers, but actually, man, let's just take a look at how wrestling kind of evolved from the 1900s to where it's at in the 80s. Can't go to where it is today because it's a different animal today. But uh, bookers are obviously one of the most important people in any wrestling company. There's no doubt about that. Uh, bookers are, are like wrestlers, too. They they all have their own style. Their style of booking, uh, it can be different from one booker to another. Totally different styles of booking. And most bookers have been former wrestlers. But they're they're smart wrestlers. They They aspire to be more than just a wrestler, a smart booker. They're the type of wrestler that's more interested in, uh, in not only being special in the ring, they want to be a complete wrestler and a complete mind as far as the business is concerned. Uh, you know, they want to understand the psychology of the sport, the logic of the sport, uh, the creativity of the sport. You know, uh, bookers are rare. They're just different animals than what normal wrestler is. Wrestling itself is basically just a sport. Uh, it's a it's an illusion, you know. It's it's an illusion that happens in a wrestling ring, uh, you know. Just like a magician uh, does his illusions uh, before an audience, you know. This illusion happens to be a physical illusion, and it's performed in a in a way that a magician would perform his act in a way. You know, it's fascinating to watch a great match. All wrestling fans. Enjoy, enjoy watching that and seeing that that magical illusion. So uh, let's discuss the development of the wrestlers themselves before we look at the bookers. Let's back up to the early 1900s. Professional wrestling back in those days, it's not a big sport. Uh, and when it is, it is a tremendously big sport. When there is an event, most events were, were rare. You didn't see them very often. And they featured the big names uh, like you know, Frank Gotch against George Hackensmith in Chicago or in New York or wherever they had their matches, uh, there would be 40, 50,000 people. I mean, the crowds were massive, but there weren't a lot of wrestlers around. So because the sport at this point, very basic matches between those two guys, sometimes they last two hours. It's amazing. They the headlock for 30 minutes and uh, the wrist lock for 30 minutes. And uh, and then the guy take a leg for th- you know, it was just, it was slow. The sport had not evolved. It was a basic sport, but the fans loved it, and they were really into it. It was shoots is what it was, and they were long shoots, you know. And as the sport grew in popularity, obviously, other wrestlers started coming along. Next group, probably around the 1920s, was Ed Strangler Lewis and Billy Sandow and Tootsmont. They called those three the, the Gold Dust Trio. Because they organized wrestling in a way that was different. Uh, The sport's evolving. They started running shows in which they had more than one match. And and they had same guys on those shows. It was like a traveling circuit. They were way ahead of where uh, Gotts and Hackensmith were and those promoters were. And this is where wrestling started to evolve into some working. You know, they've got the same guys every night. And uh, where they're going to work, they're going to start to figure out who's going to win and who's going to lose because then they can set the length of the match, basically. Uh, And to keep their fans, uh, they want them there for three hours. Then they figure out how to get them there for three hours, how many wrestlers they need on the card, what their finishes need to be. Uh, So it starts to change there. In the early 1930s, territories change it all. I mean, it all changes at that point. It really wasn't until the territory started to develop that there was a need for a lot of professional wrestlers. But, you know, once my grandfather, Roy Welk, as an, as an example, establishes his Tennessee territory, he needs wrestlers. And and so does everybody else. When Roy starts, uh, you've got Jim Crockett, the original Jim Crockett Sr., starting uh, Mid-Atlantic. And he... You've got Paul Jones that's uh, opening up in Atlanta, and you've got all of these territories that are starting to come about, and there's a tremendous need for wrestlers at that point. So uh, territories 
are confined, obviously, to smaller areas. They're not going to run nationally. They, they weren't ever set up that way. And it wouldn't have made sense. They couldn't have done it anyway back in those days. Matches then started to occur more often in these larger cities in these territories. Uh, in Atlanta, for instance, at Georgia Territory, you had Savannah and you had Atlanta and you had Macon and you had Columbus, Augusta maybe. But Atlanta was the main city, and in, in, you started to have these kind of regular events. Either every other week or every Friday night was Atlanta's night. And then that's requiring more wrestlers. And as these wrestlers are coming, there weren't many of them. There, were, there weren't thousands of them. There weren't like it's going to be down the road. There's just a limited amount. So they have to end up wrestling against each other week after week. Okay. And uh, when you get to that situation, fans start to, after a while, they begin to see the same wrestlers again and again, and they have to wrestle against each other, the same guys most of the time. People are getting a little tired of seeing it in the same old matches. So something had to be done at this point to change things, to spice it up, to give them something different. So fans will continue to be interested and continue to buy the tickets. So. It was time, basically, for someone to, to come up with something different, and that someone is going to be called a booker. That's basically how bookers came about. My grandfather might have been one of the first bookers. I mean, he knew something different was needed. He recognized what was happening and that this is not going to work if we don't have more to offer the fans. So he came up with the idea of tag team wrestling. You know, which was, it was a natural for him. He had two brothers. So, you know, first he created the four-man tag. And uh, then, uh, you know, after that started to get a little old or whatever, he threw his third brother in there and he had the six-man tags with all the Welches, all three of them in the ring at the same time. It was a creative idea. And it, it was, you know, it kind of led to these matches and these ideas start leading to angles and to programs. So basically, you know, uh, Mr. Plummer out there, you know, it, it, this kind of begins to answer your first question here about where the bookers get their inspiration. Uh, in my grandfather's case, he got his inspiration out of necessity. He, he needed it. I mean, you know, he, his business was not going to grow and it was not going to get good if he didn't, you know. So it doesn't just answer where my grandfather's inspiration uh, came from. It answers why he got that inspiration. Uh, so his tag team idea created not only a totally new kind of match that continued his territory and, and got picked up by other territories, uh, this single idea might have saved my grandfather's business, basically, and, and maybe wrestling in the South. If no one had come up with the idea of tag wrestling, think about where wrestling would have been. It, it would have never become what it became. So it also paved the way for future bookers. You know, it showed them that if you had the inspiration and you had the ideas that uh, you could do other things other than just form tag matches, you could figure out ways to make tag matches work better. You could figure out how to work these programs. Now, now we've basically explained how bookers evolved. And so uh, let's talk about the responsibilities of a booker. There are all types of bookers, same as wrestlers. You know, some are qualified and some aren't. Many bookers, past and present, they've relied on ideas of others for years. Bookers see it, and they remember it, and they do it. And, and it's done again and again. Uh, they use finishes and angles and, and, and programs that they've seen before, and it, that's easy. That's an easy way for a booker. The best bookers, they learn to judge their talent, and they figure their angles from that talent pool that they have. They work very hard to, to come up with something new. It's difficult. Imagine how many angles have been done since the 1930s when Booker started creating angles. It's unbelievable. So to come up with something new is really, really difficult. So some bookers use these ideas presented to them by talent. Great talent come to you and it has all kinds of ideas. We're talking about it today in 1976. Uh, I got Don Carson and the superstars and Ron Wright who came to me and presented me with this angle of busting Ron Wright's eye for a bounty payment. 
It was a tremendous idea, a tremendous angle. And uh, I'd been stupid to not use it. I recognized it as being really, it had tremendous potential. It was uh, basically the first big angle we did in Southeastern, and it really exploded business. So, uh, you know, and I don't think bookers, uh, you know, none of them are too proud to, to not use a good idea that's given to them by a wrestler. So, and uh, if it makes better sense, you know, if it makes business better, why would you not do it? So maybe the best angle ever done in Knoxville, uh, in southeastern Knoxville, came from Archie Goldie, the Mongolian stomper, gorgeous George Jr., and Joe LaDuke. And they set me down and said, uh, we want to break concrete block on each other's heads. <laughs> no. Oh, come on. <laughs> you know, I was like, no, I, you know, my first inclination was no, you know, it's too dangerous. But they insisted because uh, they wanted to do something that had never been done before. And they'd come up with this idea. And now it's a legendary, this concrete block and then uh, breaking incident in Southeastern is it's legendary across the country. Uh, people see it. And, and uh, you know, when it happened, Joel Duke spent five days in the hospital. I, I felt that somebody's going to get hurt. And it, it happened. You know, and obviously it happened. He never really got over that blow, probably. You know, his neck was a problem for him forever. It's never been tried again. It's one of those angles that everybody has ever seen it go, wow, man, how could they do that? And uh, nobody's ever tried it again because of the results of it. It was very, very, very dangerous. So inspiration, it doesn't come without a tremendous amount of just plain thought. You got to sit and think, and and if you want to come up with something that's never been done, it's really, really different. And then sometimes you come up with these great ideas, and you don't have the talent that can go out there in the ring and make it work. Many a great angle has been ruined by wrestlers that couldn't buy into it or, or wouldn't buy into it, one or the other. Bookers, they not only have the inspiration of the way to sell it to guys, you know, they have to learn how to go to guys and sell their ideas so that, that the guys will get involved, so they will buy into it, and they will make it happen. That's a great challenge in itself. That part of being a booker right there is a great challenge. So let's talk about the few great bookers. Uh, you know, my real, most recent Super Studcast, number 27, with Jerry Briscoe. We have a tremendous conversation about great bookers uh, in both of us happened to come up underneath the tutelage of three of them, Leo Garibaldi, Louis Tillet, and Eddie Graham. And they, these bookers, these guys, they did, they inspired wrestlers. I mean, they had a way of making you want to do whatever they wanted to do. And their success from the way they handle business and their, and their minds and the angles and the finishes and all that stuff, it just made you want to want to work for him. You wanted to be a part of it. And it was a great place for me as a young guy to really learn what the heck was going on. So let's wrestle with that last question. You know, how far out do bookers plan their angle? And that, too, always differs from booker to booker. Everybody thinks further ahead than others are far short of it. Poor bookers, they only see a couple weeks out, but uh, that's certainly not far enough. Uh, the further you plan, the better your business is going to be, the better your angles are going to be. You're able to change things, too, if something doesn't work. So it, it meant you had a very good idea for your talent and uh, and all the fans in your territory. You were going way out there. So I like to stay two, three months out. But there were two angles in particular that I want to talk about here uh, that I planned many months in advance. The first one was the NWA world title match with Terry Funk that uh, we talked about in this program today. As a matter of fact, it was introduced by Les Thatcher and I in a profile months and months ahead of this match that Terry Funk is going to be coming to town to defend the world championship in October. And then basically this program today is in April. So we're talking months in advance. We, we talk about it in detail. Uh, when we go through these chronological orders of the studcast, uh, the match was scheduled by Sam Muncy, president of the NWA, in March of 1976, and it's not going to take place until October. So I booked that card 
and I designed the program to lead up to it in March. As soon as I got the date, I said, geez, here's what I want to do. I started piecing it all together. The match is eight months away. You know, we'll talk about a second angle with another booker. This guy is one that Jerry had a lot of experience with, a guy named George Scott, who booked in Carolina, where Jerry worked a whole lot, him and Jack both. And Jerry told me that they run every year their big show in Carolina back in the day used to be a Thanksgiving show. And George Scott, being the booker, he knew on Thanksgiving night when Jerry was there one year what he was going to do the next Thanksgiving, a year later. So, you know, he's booking a year out. That's a guy who's a very sharp booker. It's one of the reasons Mid-Atlantic had such tremendous success as George Scott, who spent many, many years there developing that territory and growing it into what it became. And I got one that even tops that for length. You know, he was, he, he asked, how far out do you, do you think? So, this second angle in Southeastern history took place in Pensacola. Uh, this one is based around another NWA World Championship match. It was won with Ric Flair. It's scheduled with Muchnick, February 1982. The match is not going to take place until November of 1982, 10 months away. Right then, you know, uh, I set up two baby faces. I started thinking about what do you do to decide who wrestles this guy? I started putting all this thought into all of it, and uh, and I just I just started designing a one night tournament to decide who's going to wrestle Flair the week before the title match, and uh, end up with two baby faces. Uh, unbelievable ending to a tournament for a world championship is you got two baby faces that make it into the finals. It's me and Bob Armstrong, and uh, I win the match, and uh, Bob comes on TV. The following week before the championship match, and he asked me if I would allow him to be the special referee. Uh, we're friends. We've been friends for many, many years. Fans all know that. Fans are intrigued by it. Oh, God, this is great. Bob says, the reason is I just want to be in a ring for a world championship title change. Uh, you know, I just want to be a part of it in some way. So, you know, uh, and he really believed that I was going to win the world championship. So we come to that match that night, and obviously Bob turns heel on me in that match. And he becomes the heel for the first time in his career, in his long career. Uh, they hurt my knee that night, which they legitimately did get hurt, and I had to have a little surgery on it. But I knew we knew back in the early 1982 that I was going to come back and wrestle Bob. I would be out for a while. Uh, didn't expect it to be out uh, seriously, but I was out for a while. And that I was going to come back and wrestle Bob in June of 1983. We even knew the month. So this angle started in February 1982 when I found out Flair was going to be available. And it's going to end in June of 1983, 16 months later. So. Uh, Basically, Mr. Plummer, uh, as you can see, uh, inspiration for bookers, it comes from many places. And, and so can the distance. They book in advance, uh, depending on who the booker is. Basically, the bottom line for bookers, in both inspiration and how far out you book in advance, it's always the same for the man at the top of any wrestling company. The critical question was, and it still is, how good is business? That's for the guy that owns this company and is in regards to his booker. He don't really care. Point is, uh, you know, is this guy getting it done? And, uh, and that's where the biggest decision was made by owners of companies based on the booker. And, uh, and it's the one that <laughs> it decided to whether you were going to keep your job as a booker as to how, how well you drew. That's my answer for you, Mr. Plummer. And uh, thank you very much for your question. Okay, okay, Ron, real Ron, quick, let's remind the fans that they can become friends with the Tennessee Stud on Facebook by liking the Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Studge page, and you automatically will become friends with a legend on Twitter, at Ron Fuller Welch. Follow him there. Super Stud cast number 27 with Jerry Briscoe is another record setter. This one covers his brother, former NWA world champion Jack Briscoe, and so many other topics. The best value in wrestling today, three hours, only $2.99. 
at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Ron, where are we going next week? Uh, next week, got it. Like I said, another great story about uh, Homer and Tanaka and uh, an example of all the danger that we talked about briefly in this episode. And, uh, you know, we're going to be talking about uh, new cities that are going to be run in the week of April 16th, uh, 1976. Uh, Butch Malone's going to finally get his one-on-one with Homer. Uh, we're going to be adding another TV station to Southeastern's uh, broadcasting network uh, in Hazard, Kentucky. And then uh, we're also going to have another very interesting learning tree question, especially since we touched on this subject today. Uh, uh, you know, and this question is, uh, were you ever worried about booking Norvell Austin as a heel in places like Harlan, Kentucky and other cities down south? And what percentage of the audiences were black? in that part of the country. And, you know, and I want to thank before we go here today, Jeff, uh, all my friends, obviously, and listeners worldwide. And, and uh, I just want to remind everybody, let's do our part and stay home here until we're all safe. And uh, may God bless us all. Okay. I'd like to remind you that the Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network for the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. And for our producer, Sweet Lou Kippelman, I'm Jeff Baldrin. Until next week, when the ride continues. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains. <laughs>